Welcome to another episode of the Rethink Energy podcast, a show where the Rethink Energy team discusses the technology behind this week's energy news. I am our hydrogen analyst and editor Bogdan Avramita, and today I have Andres Wundenar, our solar analyst, join me. Good morning. Today we will be discussing two topics. The first one will be Chinese pumped hydro energy storage systems. And uh, we'll, we're going to ask Andres why China is uh, building loads of it and why the West is lagging. And then the second topic that we will tackle is hydrogen uh, refueling stations and why we hear so many announcements that so many projects get cancelled or uh, so many stations get closed up. So without any further ado, we'll uh, get straight into it. So Andres, I, uh, I read your article on uh, pumped hydro, which I thought was really interesting. And you're not the first person that raises the question of um, why isn't the world really installing, installing more pumped hydro, given that the price is, uh, is relatively um, accessible compared to some of the new energy storage solutions that emerge out there, like novel battery technologies and and so on and so forth. And it seems like China is, but not the West. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, this has been on our, our commentary for, for a while, uh, certainly since at least uh, a couple of years back when a hydropower station of 20 gigawatts got brought online in China, almost as big as Three Gorges, which is not the same as pumped hydro, but you know, it's part of a similar industry. So we picked it up then, if not earlier. So China has is, is going to end up with 62 gigawatts of pumped hydro, not hydropower in general, specifically pumped, uh, by 2025. So that's in 24 months. And then it plans to go to 120 gigawatts five years after that. And because these are Chinese energy targets, we expect them to be, they're more likely to be exceeded uh, rather than failed. That is in contrast to the US having 22 gigawatts, which is actually a fairly similar amount probably in proportion to things like population and total electricity consumption. Uh, but the difference is it's not really building any any more at all. Actually, I, I tried to look for some US uh, pumped hydro projects and the development time is like a, a decade, not too special, but it seems also like they are paused. You've got uh, projects like Eagle Mountain and Goldendale, which are perfectly adequate in terms of obviously the geography is good, the demand is good, remuneration from a liberalized uh, electricity market is good uh, for having dispatchable capacity, uh, but they're just not getting built. Like They're getting through a fair number of approvals and then some, somewhere along the line they just stop. Probably a large part of this is the environmental approvals. Another part would very likely be um, approvals for transmission uh, extensions, because that is especially a problem whenever you have to go across state lines. And another problem might be just the lack of industry scale in general, because if you look at China's factories, China's power projects, it's measured in gigawatts. If you look at the West, it's just measured in hundreds of megawatts. And maybe there is a sort of problem with getting over the hurdle of a multi-billion dollar investment that takes many years to even be completed to start drawing revenue. I'll come back to that thought in a bit and just talk about why I'm writing about this this week. It's because... Um, it's because I saw, oh, there's a 78 gigawatt single power project complex being planned in, in China, admittedly only for 2035, but what an absurd number. That's enough to power a fair number of small countries, like half of Spain, if it had enough uh, 
energy storage to uh, firm the intermittent wind and solar, which it does it, or will, because uh, it will have battery and it will have pumped hydro. And so the pumped hydro part of that got approved. And that's why I, um, that's what prompted me to just check up on how the pumped hydro is doing. And it's the same as usual. There's multiple new projects approved in just January alone. Uh, probably that was more um, active than usual, but I w I'm pretty sure if I had made the effort, uh, as I have done before, to actually go through a given month of Chinese announcements and then the next month and just identify the one, the projects that are in the news specifically for being for beginning construction. That's always a good benchmark. You, I'm pretty sure you would see several each month, and they're all on the scale of 1.2 gigawatts or larger. Yeah, so it's just, and this this also put me in mind of. Uh, Australia. So there is some pumped hydro activity in the West. Uh, I think the main one is um, the Snowy Hydro 2.0 project uh, in Australia, which is, let me again, look at the size. So its size is 2.2 gigawatts, which is actually very good. I mean, it's bigger than almost all, probably all of the Chinese ones. I think the largest Chinese one I've seen is 2.1. And uh, it's got 350 gigawatt hours of potential storage capacity if it gets filled up completely. It's got one of the world's biggest hydrogen excavations. But the problem is it keeps on getting delayed. And in August, we, um, the, the sort of company in, uh, in charge of it said, oh, uh, sorry, it's going to take a few more years. And um, the, the cost has doubled. <sighs> now, this made me think, well, actually, let's, let's do a bunch of direct comparisons. And I won't list out too many numbers because that probably doesn't play too well on a podcast format. Um, but basically, before that cost increase, it was running at twice the cost of what it should be if it were built in China. Should I? Anyway. Now, you could say a lot of things cost twice as much in the West than in China, especially when you're looking at a, a heavy... Uh, heavy industrial large scale infrastructure project you know it's not it's not too outrageous for china to build that half price in terms of nominal money so you know but now it's four times as much after the latest upgrade and that's just and, and you also have a private company and the private company reports that and one of its um boring tunneling machines got stuck for six months in soft rock and you know it's just one project and we can't build it Meanwhile, the Chinese have these giants that are probably owned by the state, I assume. The, the big ones usually are. And it's $1 billion per gigawatt in China, $4 billion per gigawatt in Australia. And it's just like, uh, it just it's just the usual China envy um, that I, I like to indulge in from now on, uh, every now and then. Uh, I think that just about covers everything. Um, I mean, from that. Yeah, you, um, China envy. I think that's, I think that's a real thing, to be honest, because... In uh, my experience uh, in uh, different other sectors, uh, not specifically energy storage, but uh, when we talk about the grid, for instance, because you touched as um, um, the grid extensions being one of the problems that potentially those um, US pumped hydro projects are dealing with. And it's true, China it seems like doesn't have to deal with a lot of problems, a lot of permitting problems that uh, the West is, especially the US where you have a, you know, a transmission project or an energy storage project that's maybe crossing, um, well, more specifically, I think this only applies to, to grid project, right, which maybe spans over several states. Then you get into state permitting. If it's close to anything that's to do with the US military, it needs a military permit. If it's touching over some indigenous land in its in its uh, those type of permits, 
So it's really a permit after permit after permit, and the lead times get into double digits in terms of years, right? So you can easily see how these this sort of things can um, can stop a project in its tracks. And it just seems like China is not really dealing with a lot of that. So I think China Envy might be a real thing from that point of view. And another weird thing is that China is the country with 1,000, probably 1,300 gigawatts of coal. And I think it's something like 100 gigawatts of gas. So they don't even need loads of storage. I mean, they might like it. It's not a bad idea, but they are the ones that still have all of the traditional conventional um, dispatchable energy. And I guess with old coal power stations, they're not great for ramping up and down. When the Vietnamese uh, built a whole load of solar in one year, and started ramping up and down their coal, they had a whole load of breakages because um, these were like old coal plants that weren't designed for that. Uh, but you can still do it. And and so we in the West have um, other ones that are much more far advanced down the path of uh, an intermittent, a fundamentally intermittent uh, power grid. I, sh- I should say intermittent generation sources. And then hopefully the power grid on the other hand is not intermittent because we've got energy storage. But it's like, so why are we the ones that are lagging on the energy storage when we're the ones that need it? And why, why are the Chinese uh, roaring ahead when they don't really need it yet? Uh, it's, it's kind of ironic. It's, um, and, and, you know, to, to get a bit silly about history, why, how has America ended up feeling so complex and Byzantine and sclerotic when it, it was a revolutionary government just a couple of centuries ago? And it had all these ideas about, um, you know, liberal, uh, small state, low tax, but now it's the, it feels like the opposite. It feels like there's these fiefdoms of utilities and each state sort of is not cooperative with the next. Texas is its own uh, semi-isolate grid, which is just really weird when you compare it to everywhere else. Yeah, just uh, a world of contrasts. You know, at the end of the day, you have to ask, is, the, is someone ever going to be able to change what the US is doing or will um, Western grid developments, including storage, um, default into the smaller scale of development? Like, will will it constant? Will it be more and more about community solar, medium-sized utility plants, domestic energy storage even, uh, simply because that's where, that's what has to be built, and that's what gets incentivized heavily in a future where there's loads of excess power at the wrong time of day. Uh, meanwhile, the big projects are, are, are still blocked by all these approvals and, and other issues. I get maybe the West will end up uh, with a disproportionate amount of, of distributed storage instead. Yeah, I mean, on distributed storage, I think um, I think we we agree, you and I, on the fact that uh, this will gain in popularity as uh, as the years roll on. But I think you know to to finish up the China discussion. Look, they have a twenty sixty goal. And I think they're minding their own agenda, and they've, they've been doing that for a while now. They are extremely good, like you said, at um, like you said in the article, uh, at setting a target and beating that by a couple of years. We're used to that now, so that's no news. But it uh, does seem like China is operating in a in a league of, league of its own when it comes to scaling up renewables. Anyway, moving on, uh, the second topic that we're gonna discussed today is uh, hydrogen fueling refueling stations aimed at uh, trucks, light duty vehicles, passenger cars, uh, whatever you prefer, whatever you're driving. Um, they probably have a station for you. Will it close in the next six months? 
highly likely given given the trend in announcements it's uh, more likely that uh, if you're reading about hydrogen refueling stations one has been closed rather than another one being built or being announced so i did something into this but i think you know there's this there's so much debate around the green hydrogen industry is it going to happen is it not going to happen look we we put out a report last year on the hydrogen industry the first thing that needs to happen for the green hydrogen industry to happen is the electrolyzers. Long story short, electrolyzers today, or rather the ones that get installed today, and at times fail. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm um, referencing the uh, Chinese Sinapec projects that are questionable uh, the present regarding durability and uh, and output. The first thing that needs to happen for the green hydrogen industry to happen is the electrolyzer. And today, a lot of the projects that get that get uh, commissioned, they used electrolyzers that use a design that's tens of years old, even seventy years old. Electrolyzers that have been used uh, in the nineteen uh, nineties, uh, sorry, nineteen hundreds. So that's the problem with them. Those those machines were have never been built for the durability that the green hydrogen industry is looking for. And durability is a big, big factor when we're talking about investors or, or banks uh, getting a, uh, giving a final investment decision on a, on a big hydrogen project. Right, so then you have loads and loads of electrolysis startups that are trying to redesign the electrolyzer, and this takes time. So perhaps the industry fell into a false sense of security, thinking, oh, we have the electrolyzer design, we have all those big, big manufacturing players, they're just going to start churning those out, and they're not really what, uh, what is needed as a tool for the whole industry to scale up and for uh, the demand to match the, sorry, for the supply, rather match the potential demand, right? You have so many sectors that are waiting for a, for a constant supply of cheap quality. So I, I have a bit of a question though, because with EVs, there was the chicken and egg question where mm. how, you, can't, you can't use an EV unless there's charging infrastructure, but you can't build in infrastructure when there aren't EVs. Yes. But I'm looking at this article, and you've got a nice graph of hydrogen supply by category. And in 2024, um, it starts off with uh, gray, basically Mm -hmm. just gray. And then it grows later on with some blue and some green. So that can't you actually start using hydrogen vehicles and just running them on gray? And then once you've got the vehicles, that allows you to build the green production capacity. Or is that kind of counterproductive and pointless because then you're burning, um, you know, it's a fossil fuel. (laughs) I mean, yes, from that point of view, yes, but I mean, it's not like companies care about that. Uh, I think the problem with gray hydrogen is that at the moment it's, it's, so it's, it's only used in industrial processes. So companies purchase natural gas, steam, methane reforming, and then they get, they get the hydrogen. The problem is that the gray hydrogen is really highly dependent on the price of natural gas, which has been very volatile. So, and also, like you said, there's the emissions problem, right? So if you start running uh, fuel cell cars on gray hydrogen, then what have you achieved? Not yeah. much. So I think, yeah, the graph that I included in the article 
is um, showing when green hydrogen and blue hydrogen are both relatively collectively low carbon sources of hydrogen compared to to gray hydrogen uh, when those two sources of hydrogen are going to start creeping into the supply stream of global hydrogen i think that's when you know sectors will start adopting more and more hydrogen because they need to have the option right at the moment they don't really have the option um, we see some you know green hydrogen or blue hydrogen offtake agreements being signed but they're kind of like one of deals uh, for low volume spread over the next couple of years for people to you know start ramping up pilots and whatnot when we're talking about um you know to tr to to get back to your question about the chicken and egg problem which i didn't really want to get too much into the into this into the article because you know <laughs> this is not a philosophy yeah uh, podcast <laughs> but um i think at the moment if you're building a hydrogen refueling station you're highly dependent on location the other businesses around you and so many other factors uh, which really uh, put your project at risk right so i think my point with the article and i said you know in my opinion uh when green and blue hydrogen are going to be re more readily available which is 2026 2027 we kind of see according to my graph uh them starting to make uh, an appearance and diminish the, the reliance on gray hydrogen that's probably a better timeline so in a couple of years right two to three years from now on that's probably a better time i want the risk diminishes if you're if you're um building a hydrogen refueling station the risk will have diminished in two to three years now on the wider topic of fuel cell vehicles we don't see fuel cell passenger cars really take off so we're really really talking mostly about um refueling stations and trucks um because local trucking will will prefer hydrogen uh, instead of batteries and um, on that note uh europe has a big plan of building uh, hydrogen film infrastructure alongside the european highways so what is the current status of uh, hydrogen refueling infrastructure? Because it seems like the, the fresh news that may or may not have sparked you to write this article this week is um, you're mentioning uh, Shell permanently or hopefully indefinitely shutting down its hydrogen stations uh, in California. And then it cancelled. It also cancelled 48 new hydrogen station plans and five light-duty stations out of seven. Yeah, so I mean... The the thing with the thing that doesn't really surprise me is that it's Shell, right? So Shell, one of the old the oil giants, the oil majors, uh, they have the money to do this. Hmm. They need to be, uh, you know, or rather they're trying to, to. I don't know if they're trying to appear or to actually be ahead of the game. That's you know, we're not talking greenwashing here. But I think my opinion is that they have the finances to do this and to that they're happy to fail with 50 refueling stations, which is nothing for them, than to uh, be left behind, I suppose. So I think you need to take some of these announcements with a, with a pinch of salt. Because I don't cover this topic myself, of course, because it's yours, but I remember reading about a bunch of hydrogen vehicle fleets off in Inner Mongolia, because I read the Chinese news. And this article here says, like, uh, hydrogen vehicles are less than 1% of new zero emission car, perhaps even within yep. new sales category, in, in California, no less. So it's a tiny sliver of eccentrics who 
may have their own, I don't know, personal supply chains. I don't know quite <laughs> how it works. And Europe, uh, again, has a plan. And then you're asking, you know, the title of this whole, whole piece is, when should your business open a hydrogen refueling station? So uh, I mean, you've already told us the answer, right? It's 2026, 20, when there's the green supply that's cheaper, right? Yeah, 2026, 2027, mm -hmm. it's like I said, that's, that's probably a more sensible decision because, uh, you know, you can be too early to the party. And I think some of those companies are too early to the party. Has hydrogen, um, what's its price right now? Very basic question. I could scroll down and find it somewhere. <laughs> yes, I mean, we do cover this in the issue. We have a couple of... Yeah. of um, Where's our price section? <laughs> indices right at the bottom, close to the bottom. We have some indices uh, from Germany, from Netherlands, and... Oh, and so it's $7, seven like dollars per euros per kilogram five dollars per kilogram six dollars per kilogram and uh but then your forecast is roughly half that or a bit over half hmm. just for the end of this year yes that's all dependent on on some projects scaling up that that was our stance uh last year but we will have to revisit that this year to see where we stand on on that matter but yes not quite 1.5 dollars per kilogram which is really the big promise and the big target, you know, like the with the IRA, that's essentially the target of getting um, hydrogen for you know one point five dollars per kilogram or even less. But yeah, I think with with refueling stations to kind of wrap this topic up, like I said, we believe that trucking will favor hydrogen over batteries for the range and refueling um, capabilities. EVs will prefer batteries over hydrogen for the cost, a bit cheaper to use. So when you're looking at the world of trucking, and like I said, Europe is trying to build um, infrastructure along its its major highways, continental highways, for trucks. You also have to look at then, okay, but when will trucks actually end up on those highways? Because there aren't many right now. There barely are some some battery electric ones. All, all, all to come in, 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 in a couple of years by the end of the decade. Uh, but, you know, those, both those uh, industries, right, the, the trucking industry and the hydrogen supply industry, uh, they need to be there for then the middleman, which is the hydrogen refueling station, to be useful. It feels a bit like perovskites because um, mm. on the one hand, it's kind of hard to get it started. Not so much in perovskites' case because it's just a... You know, small flap of material in comparison to the enormous infrastructure that hydrogen needs. So it, it's almost tempting sometimes to become a skeptic just because a year or two years has passed with not much progress. But then you're, well, uh, and there is certainly progress for both, but, you know, it's relative to the past. It hasn't reached the tipping point yet. It hasn't become the full industry yet. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, but whenever you try to say, well, maybe I should become a skeptic, then you remember that there's just no alternative because silicon hmm. PV isn't, it can't really improve much more. So all of the R&D goes into the new avenue, which is perovskites. And in the case of hydrogen, you know, there isn't really that much alternative for a variety of industrial processes uh, for the long haul. I mean, you could probably use batteries for a lot of stuff if you had to, but there are things where hydrogen, you know, it's clearly better to have that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's inevitable sooner or later. Yeah, that's I agree with that, and that's kind of the premise of of our stance and our opinion is is essentially the world uses so much hydrogen today, 
that's going to have to be decarbonized. You need a significant amount of electrolysis capacity to actually produce that green hydrogen. That's gonna that's gonna drop your cost significantly because the install base will will increase significantly. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we're getting into economies of scale and learning curve territory, which will force the prices of those machines to drop down. As long as you have a, a sustainable and renewable stream of, of relatively uh, low price electricity, well, then that $1.5 per kilogram that we talked about won't be easy to achieve. So this is why we're so we're such an advocate for hydrogen. Um, it just seems it seems like things just need time, but the dominoes are all set in place. But anyway, uh, moving on to a couple of uh, short items that we covered in our um, World of Renewables this week's section that you can find in the issue or on the website at rethinkresearch.biz, all of the stories that we talked about today, you can find on our website. They're part of our weekly issue, so we do this every week, we do this podcast every week if you're not subscribed please look us up and do so um but like i said we covered a couple of of um short items in uh in this uh section at the bottom of the issue uh the european commission has uh, initiate has initiated an industrial alliance for uh, small modular modular reactors to expedite their uh, development in europe targeting development by early 2030s. So we still see people betting on small modular reactors when it comes to nuclear, even though costs uh, keep increasing uh, every I month. always I always think, though, about Finland and how its solar generation goes to zero in the winter. Or more mm. correctly, it goes from 700 megawatts to five. Um, so they can't be feeling too bad about their existing nuclear capacity. I guess in the future you could have like solar capacity that's a few kilometer, a few thousand kilometers to the south, and you send it northwards. But it is a bit of a problem because if you're in winter, you eliminate half of the solar power. You're just trying to work off wind. I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of contradicting you just to be contrarian. Uh, no, get, I mean, yeah. it makes for a good show, I suppose. When you hear European and nuclear in the same sentence it does make you unsurprised when at the end of the sentence it says oh yes something's going to happen in the next decade not this decade mm. <laughs> to yeah. be as rude as possible mm-hmm. but I, you know maybe they will have to do that just because of like i said the lack of alternatives i mean a lack of alternatives now but they're talking about yeah let's build smrs for 2030s but okay by 2030s aren't you supposed to hit your win targets in the North Sea, right next to Finland. Right then, Baltic Seas, of course. Um, so, from that point of view, that's that's my counter-argument. <laughs> well, I just wonder about situations where maybe there's uh, the wind, you know, the wind goes quiet for a couple of days. Well, that's when you have some energy storage, right? Yeah, and, and Norwegian hydropower reservoirs. But uh, no, I think the solutions are there. All the solutions are there. I think you know all these people that uh, that have the checks need to figure things out. Um, but anyway, um, let's see what else. I've got a tiny little one right at the start of renewables orders this week, and 
I, I haven't really covered gravity block storage, but I just noted it down. Kejiang Group, hopefully that's translated correctly, but it's some Chinese company, has begun construction of a 25-megawatt, four-hour duration gravity block energy storage system at Redon. So I know you you chaps, probably Connor it would be, more than you have written about um, gravity storage, uh, and there is some in China as well. Yeah, so I think the, the interesting thing about that, which um, we were talking with um, somebody from a uh, U.S. energy storage company that's doing gravity. And they tipped us on to why China is so uh, keen to gravity storage is because, because of the real estate uh, sector slowing down and trying to uh, kind of artificially keep alive. Hence why uh, gravity storage, which has a relatively large footprint compared to some other storage systems, is, um, is being preferred in China. So there you have it. But, well, because they've got a whole load of spare concrete and cranes and, and building workers. That's quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of yeah. makes sense. Mm. Okay, then on that note, I think we should wrap it up for this week. But we'll be back next week covering uh, whatever happened in the world of renewables in the next seven days based on whatever we choose to write on next Wednesday. Thank you for joining us. Again, a reminder all the stories uh, and the topics covered on this show or uh, you can find on our website, rethinkresearch.biz. Go to Energy Weekly Analysis. You can also find some of the reports that we uh, referenced in this show under forecasts and data. And uh, get in touch if you want to talk to us about anything. If you want to make a guest appearance on this po podcast, we're open to that. So drop us a message and we'll get back to you. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you next week.